0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we have what I would describe as an exciting show. I think so. Because we are going to be talking to, but also, you know, keep it real, maybe end up debating, mm-hmm. uh, a right-wing populist. And this is, like, as true of a right-wing populist as you can find.
1: Yes. So, Sora Amari, he has a new book out called Tyranny, Inc. He's uh, founder and editor of Compact Mag and... Tyranny Inc., like I read it and it's social democracy. I mean, I would kept waiting for the dodge of like, and that's why we gotta fight wokeness or whatever. It's not in there. It's actually like, you know, talking about FDR and talking about social democracy, talking about real, you know, pushing back against corporate power. And so the the rub is, though, can this even exist on the right? And what makes you—if this is central to your political philosophy, like, why are you even on the right? Now, he's a social conservative, so we'll talk to him about—you know, we'll talk to him about all these things. But it should be a very interesting conversation.
0: Yeah, but I guess it's like, what do you value more, right? The social conservatism or the economic leftism? And, like, you know, if he's cutting in a particular direction on that, I think we have our answer. But anyway, we'll get into that with him. It should be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But before we do that, man— there was when we were doing the uh you know the pre show prep and trying to determine what intro stories to cover. I this was the most I've ever had where I like couldn't narrow it down. There were just too many stories. Yeah. So we're not, we can't. I we don't have time to get to all of these things, but I just want to bring up a couple of things for for people so they know some of the stuff that's going on that we can't get to specifically. But first of all, the Department of Labor officially proposed raising the overtime threshold. So currently, if you make over thirty five thousand five hundred dollars a year, you aren't eligible for time and a half. For working more than 40 hours a week. So what they're doing is they're proposing that this goes all the way up to 55,000. So this would basically massively increase pay for overtime work for a significant percentage of the country, millions, millions more workers than it is right now. I mean, I would say you shouldn't even have the threshold, right? Like I wouldn't have a threshold. But the fact that they're changing it from about 35,000 to 55,000, that's going to help a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it really is. And apparently the backstory of this was Obama tried to lift the threshold. It ran into some kind of technical difficulty. Then Trump dropped, you know, just left it alone and didn't do anything on it. And now the Biden administration is pushing it beyond where the Obama administration was going to do. And this comes on the heels of a huge thing with the NLRB, too, which will make it much more easier to unionize. So some good stuff for workers coming out of the Biden administration genuinely this week.
0: Yes. Now, not so good stuff for Rudy Giuliani, though. Because he uh, he forfeited the defamation lawsuit, which means he lost because he repeatedly smeared and defamed two Georgia election workers who were just doing their jobs. And, you know, he basically said, like, they cheated. They rigged the election. They stole it. We have them on video. We called them all sorts of terrible names. These women
1: to drug dealers It was horrible.
0: They were threatened to the point where one felt like I can't even go to the grocery store. So apparently he has now lost that case, which is uh, honestly the first like big win vis-a-vis everything that went on around January 6th and the fake rigged election stuff.
1: Yeah. And um, apparently he's already in really dire financial straits because of um, all of the legal bills that are piling up. But this this was really if you read the details of this, it was really disgusting. These were it's a mother and a daughter. They were passing mints to each other while they're doing this civic duty, like going above and beyond as election workers, which you don't get paid to do, which they're doing out of like, you know, a sense of commitment to the community. And this uh, video got passed around right wing media like crazy. Trump apparently was obsessed with this video and brought it up a million times, too, even though Giuliani knew that he was lying, that they were passing mints back and forth. He said it was USB ports. And that they were passing them back and forth like they were drug dial- dealers, and these were like crack vials or something horrific like that. And so they became the fixation of these right wing conspiracy theorists. One of them even got like lured under false pretenses to talk to one of the other defendants in the Fulton County January 6th thing to try to, you know, try to trick her into admitting she did something wrong on election This really upended their whole lives. And these were just regular people trying to do like the right thing on election day.
0: And he admitted, by the way, yeah, I do- Defame them yeah he admitted it eventually he, so.
1: he admitted that it was a lie and then his only defense was like but i don't think they were defamed i don't think they were harmed by this but like they were clearly harmed well, by it. He's, well
0: now he's guilty so yeah. suck on that rudy indeed uh we also have i don't know if you saw this trump on vivek he was asked if he would consider him as a running mate and he said quote he'd be very good
1: hmm i uh Cannot see Trump picking the Vegas. So everybody. I don't think so either, because I think Trump.
0: It's been uh, pretty clear for a while now. He wants to number one go with a woman, and number two go with somebody whose only you know criteria and standard is you have to be the most sycophantic loyalist to me imaginable. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be uh, what's her name in North Dakota again? I'm blanking oh, on her Christy name. Noem. Christy Noam. Christy Noam. I think it's going to be Christy Noam. I think Harry Lake is a loser, and so he doesn't want to.
1: He's also been looking at Nancy Mace, apparently. Uh, fake
0: person, fake name,
1: Congresswoman. That person doesn't make But you know, uh, with Vivek, Dan Marins has a good piece at Huffington Post about how Vivek has copied Trump's style and vibe, and like also New York Times has a piece about how he's copied his willingness to just like brazenly lie about things he said one minute ago and right, be like, yeah. I didn't say that. But um, his economics are actually way worse than Trump. He's like standard issue hard libertarian on economics. Um, with regard to the Fed, with regard to trade, he wants to get back in TPP, like things like that. So, yeah. so not like, that I'm like a fan of Trump's economic policy, I'm not, but he, on the few areas that Trump was actually right, Vivek is wrong.
0: Yeah, Social Security, Medicare, the cut he, them, In fairness,
1: he said he would, not, he would not touch Social Security and Medicare.
0: Now, so that's the one area that's where he's not where he's super anarcho-capitalist.
1: Yeah, where he's picked up the Trump line.
0: So we just had this big hurricane hit Florida, Idalia, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently in the middle of it, Ron DeSantis came out and said, you loot, we shoot. Talking about potential hurricane pillagers. Now, there's many issues with this, but probably the number one issue is nobody was looting anything. Yes. So I don't know if he was thinking back to what, like Katrina in 2004, whenever it was, and bringing it up, or if he's just trying to be like Mr. Tough Guy.
1: That's what it is. But
0: like, why would you say that? Your, your state is getting destroyed. There's a storm surge all over the Big Bend in the northwest portion of Florida. And you're out there saying, you loot, we shoot. And by the way, if somebody loots in the middle of a hurricane in the overwhelming majority of circumstances, it's like, oh, my God, I don't have food. Like, let me go get some food. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, but even if it is some just, like, crime of opportunity, like, oh, social chaos is unfolding, so let me go grab a TV or whatever, like, they deserve to be executed for that? Yeah,
0: it's not even, like, just arrest them like a normal, you no, know, person would. No, it's like, would. let's it's, murder them let's for murder whatever,
1: them. like, petty crime they committed. Unbelievable. It, it's, yeah, it's gross, obviously, trying to use this moment for his political advantage and thinking that the way to appeal to the hearts of the GOP base is by being Mr. Tup Guy, lock him up, et cetera.
0: So you have some potential huge news on... um. Biden and what he decided to do with marijuana. I remember right before the midterms, he came out and basically said we're going to do a review, but it's no longer going to be a Schedule One drug, right? And so they wanted to do like some sort of a study. By the way, you didn't need a study; (laughs) like we already know exactly. There have been studies, yeah, Yeah, of course. Like, what are you doing anyway? So, but he announced it, and now at least to some extent, he's following through on it. So, give everybody that information.
1: Yeah. So, the Biden administration's Department of Health and Human Services, I'm reading from this is a Politico article about it, is recommending the DEA significantly loosen federal restrictions on marijuana, but stop short of advising it should be entirely removed from the Controlled Substances Act. So what they're doing is previously marijuana had been a Schedule 1 drug which is insane. Okay. Schedule one is like for the hardest drugs, has the most onerous restrictions on it. These are drugs that are both very likely highly addictive and also have no medical purposes, which marijuana doesn't fit either of those categories. So removing it from being a schedule one drug down to a schedule three drug. Now it's still criminalized, so it's not totally descheduled. It's not, you know, it's still criminal. Um, Although obviously with The way enforcement has worked, states have been left more or less to their own devices to do what they want, but Schedule I and Two drugs face the strictest regulations, they say. Schedule One drugs are effectively illegal for anything outside of research. Schedule Two drugs can be used for limited medical purposes with the DEA's approval, for example, through a license for prescriptions. So this is now Schedule Three, which is even below that. So it just sort of loosens up the regulations, allows research, allows it to be more uh, widely distributed and spread. There was an activist who... Uh, describe the move this way. They say rescheduling cannabis from one to three does not end criminalization. It just rebrands it. People will still be subject to criminal penalties for mere possession, regardless of their legal status in a state level medical program. And what I would say, Kyle, is that, you know, two things can be true. Number one, this is the biggest move uh, and change in drug policy that we've seen in decades, probably in our whole lives. Um, So it is significant. It matters. It's a major improvement. It's a real win. On the other hand, of course, it doesn't go as far as we would like it to go.
0: I actually think it's classic Biden. It's like Biden in a nutshell. Totally. It's like, should I do something half decent? Yes, I should. But. Should I split the difference between correct and incorrect? Right. Yes, I should. Yes. <laughs> like that's that's classic Absolutely. Joe Biden. So it's like, you know, you have to point out the objective fact that this is better than Trump, right? In every mm-hmm. area, especially this one, it's better than Trump. Right. So I, you know, credit on that, but, you know, everybody knows the real answer is at the very least to decriminalize it federally. Um really, I think the correct answer is to legalize it federally so you it's legal, taxed and regulated and You know, look, I'm sure that along with this came um, basically the executive branch telling everybody hands off, hands off, hands off. Right. Like, I'm sure there's a directive of like, let's not let's not go crazy over this. Let's not actually lock people up over it. I'm sure that's part of it. But why not just codify that? Why not just make it? Mm -hmm. It is at least decriminalized on a federal level. So, like Mm -hmm. I said, classic Biden. And, you know, I think the downside of this is it's not going to be. As politically potent as if he were to just legalize it or decriminalize it fully. You know what I mean? Because if you come out and say, no, it's fully decriminalized or even even legalized, which I don't know if he actually has the authority to just legalize it on his own. I guess if you take it off the schedule uh, substances list completely, maybe then it's just effectively legalized. If you did that, I think there actually is like a political bump in terms of you might get a five-point bump coming off of it because this is an issue that now polls at 60 or 70% in some polls. And this is an issue where, you know, if you're struggling with youth voters right now, which he is, and you want them to turn out in the next election, well, this is one of those issues where people go, okay, well, you know, I could point to some very concrete things that he did that I support, and that's one of them. And so, good, um, not good enough, better than Republicans, but, you know, that's the lowest bar of all time. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of caught between those two points yeah. in my own mind.
1: Well, and I do think that um, I, and I'm glad, like, I don't care what the motivations are, whether they're cynical or not, that there's progress in the right direction. But I do think they explicitly have the affections of young voters in mind when they're making these moves, yes. because remember, when they announced this study. That was going to lead to marijuana being rescheduled or completely descheduled, which isn't what happened. Um, it was right before the midterms, right? Yep. And that was also when they announced that he was going to pardon a bunch of low-level like marijuana drug users, basically. And you know, they can see the numbers. One of the Pod Save guys, Dan Pfeiffer, was out sort of freaking out about the fact that Biden and Trump are tied in the polls. And the number one thing he pointed to was how much how disaffected young voters are. And it's not like they're fleeing; they're flocking to Trump. They're not voting for Trump. They're just thinking of staying out in time or potentially voting for cornell west and so they're sounding the alarm about that i'm sure the administration is looking at this and they're like "Ah, oh, what can we do and so this is one the other thing is to continue to try to you know do something on student debt yeah that's he enough. didn't vote
0: the higher education act which is was a try workaround to the supreme court no,
1: but again in typical biden fashion like he did it in a way that's going to take fucking forever and it's not as direct as it could be and he it, said i'm going to have you start paying back your
0: the interest rate's going to accrue yeah yeah exactly yeah. And it's
1: gonna yeah payments are going to restart oh but we put in Place, this new income plan, which is so freaking complicated that when people are calling their servicers, their loan services are li- literally telling us them call us back in January yeah. when maybe the call volume would be a little bit lower and we can figure this all out. So anyway, classic I, I, biden better than it was better than the Republicans, but still like frustrating.
0: I will say in his defense, I didn't expect any of this. I didn't expect even the student loan debt reduction that we got. And I yeah. didn't expect him to take marijuana from schedule one to schedule three. Yeah. So on that alone, I'm like, hey, awesome. But to your point, it's like, it's almost like for his own sake, you want to tell him, just decriminalize it and just wipe out all the student loan debt. And then now you're really talking about, you know, if he did, if he did those two things on that alone, I think Trump would have no chance. I already think Trump's on the ropes, but that would be like game, set, match, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. But when it's all like complicated, maybe we get this, maybe we don't. And what does it mean? Schedule three versus schedule one. It's like you're shooting yourself in the foot, really.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. All right, so uh, I have to show you this video. Ted Cruz went on Newsmax. Now, by the way, his Twitter account is the absolute worst. It's the worst, the worst, the worst. (laughs) Like, I see, I follow him. I don't know why I do that to myself. And (laughs) I'll see him say, like, on a daily basis, I'll see at least one thing that I know is purposefully obtuse. Mm. Like, he, he... He's Ivy League educated. He knows he's being he's being incorrect when he says certain things. And he says right. it anyway. Yeah. And so I'm probably one of the number one reply guys to Ted Cruz on Twitter. So oh, I'm just for like,
1: yeah, I didn't I'm always even, just like, I didn't even know that about like him. <laughs> I'm always like,
0: you, <laughs> you absolute moron. No, like I'm always I can't help it. He triggers me in a way that very few people can. But he went on uh, Newsmax and there were some new guidelines that came out from, uh, you know, the White House that were like, hey, two beers a week really is, you know, the maximum Basically for your own health, like whatever. We have some studies that say when you drink more than that, there's Mm -hmm. really deleterious consequences. And so they released that not to say, hey, we're going to ban you from drinking two more beers a week. Right. Just to be like, hey, by the way, we happen to know that, you know, there will be more health health. consequences. Yeah, it's the most banal, standard governing stuff you've ever heard in your life. Okay. Just like, let me barely look out for my own population and let them know, like, hey, we know this fact, right? right? Okay. Well, of course, Ted Cruz takes this, misconstrues it, goes on Newsmax, makes a big deal of it because he's so culture war brained. Take a look. State has now done that for new construction. They're trying to go after and regulate ceiling fans. I got to tell you, it's hot in Texas. We don't want to get rid of our ceiling fans. And now these idiots have come out and said, drink, two beers a week. That's their guideline. Well, I got to tell you, if they want us to drink two beers a week, frankly, they can kiss my ass.
1: No. Okay. Um, Senator, I, uh,
0: I brought a beer to drink with you. I'll drink this non-alcoholic beer with you because I'm not allowed to drink on camera, but I'll have, I'll have a sip. In well, the meantime, look, I, I got to say, so have you is, ever seen a brand do more damage to itself then Bud Light, which, which single-handedly seem to destroy themselves. So I'm glad you're not drinking a Bud Light. Personally, I'm fond of Shiner Bock, which is a good uh, te- Texas brand. I've been to the Shiner Brewery in Shiner, Texas, and I recommend it. And I promise you, this is not alcohol-free beer down here. I think what bothers me the most about that is he tries so hard. Like, he tries so hard. He saw when Trump came up in 2015 and 2016 and just blew his boring ass out of the water. And ever since then, he's like desperately like, please, can I have a crumb of of relevance? Do you guys like me? I'll do stuff to make you like me. Culture war, culture war, culture war, culture war. Look at me. I love, he's got like six Texans behind him. Big old boys with their cowboy hats, right? And they pre-plan the whole thing, like we're going to do this really manly thing where we're going to sip the beer when I say "kiss my ass." Everybody sip the beer, and they're all standing there like a bunch of goofballs. And it's like he's trying to portray this macho, masculine, right wing kind of guy, <laughs> and you just come across as the biggest dork on the planet. You are such a tryhard. <laughs> and right, how pathetic is it? It's just so
1: pathetic. Is this what guys do when they're trying to be masculine? Yeah. They go, <laughs> I'm going to go like this. <laughs> that looks like a Trump dance move, actually. No,
0: that's the double jerk-off. He jerks off in the air like this. He I, jerks off two guys, left and right. But it's, it's
1: so perfect because part of why people just instantly loathe Ted Cruz is because you can tell how fake this persona Absolutely. is. That he, he would be so much better off if he just was like the smarmy nerdy, Ivy League-educated dude that he actually is. He'd be Paul Ryan. Yes. Right? And Paul Ryan got sucked off by the media. Yeah, just, I mean, it would be bad. It it still would be bad. I'm not going to be, you know, Listen, it's just he has a something about him just makes people instantly like, oh, but it would be better, okay, than him trying to be some, like, Texan tough guy thing that everyone knows is not real. And then... It's so awkward, and then he can kind of tell that it's a little awkward, so then he's like, Bud Light, am I right? Like, that was a thing, right? We're all related. It's like, ugh, it's just so bad. It, You know what it reminded me of? Remember the Elizabeth Warren launch video? Yeah. With her trying to, like, yep. drink a beer, a beer yeah. with her, mm-hmm. and her husband is, like, trying to escape the chaos, like, d- desperately doesn't want to be in this video and whatever, and it and had she that goes, same, same energy. She
0: says... I thank you for being here to her husband. And then Trump (laughs) later on that day tweeted, my favorite part of the video is when she thanks her husband for being there. He's supposed to be there. It's
1: your house. (laughs) And and that's the thing is like Trump is an asshole. Like Trump never tried to not be a rich businessman. You know what I mean? Like I was thinking about this with the Iowa State Fair. They all go to the Iowa State Fair and they wear their, like, flannel shirt, their jeans or whatever, even if they're Ted Cruz, and clearly this is really uncomfortable garb for them. Like, that was part of what his appeal was and is, is he's like, no, I wear a suit, I brought my private helicopter, I'm going to give people a ride, I'm going to play into the character that I am, and... You know, that is I can't stand Donald Trump, but from a political perspective, way more appealing than this really obvious try hard crap that Ted Cruz is doing.
0: The thing that I think bugs me the most about this is like Ted Cruz knows 100 percent without a doubt, they're not banning you from having more than two beers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. But he pretends like that's the case. Right. And it's like, who are you kidding? Right. I get you're trying to throw red meat to your base, but can you do it in a way that at least has a semblance of factual truth to it?
1: This I looked up the ceiling fan thing, too, that he makes reference to there, because I was like, well, what a, this has got to be bullshit, too. And so to, in case you're wondering what the reality is here, um, apparently there's some new proposed standard that hasn't even been implemented about energy efficiency in ceiling fans that would cut fan-related electricity costs by about 40% relative to the least efficient fans currently available. So that's the idea is like, we're going to try to get more efficient ceiling fans put in place. But again, it's not like no one's coming to confiscate your ceiling fan. They're all, what he's doing here and what Republicans are doing is remember the whole gas stove freak out? I was going to bring that up. They're trying to recreate the gas stove freak out magic and now be like, they're coming for your ceiling fans and demanding you only drink two beers a week. So
0: I did a deep dive on that because I was like obviously this isn't happening. What the hell are they talking about? Right. And and some of the, like, you know, fact-checking sites, Snopes and some others, like, had some articles on it. And the way that they misconstrued that was astonishing to the point where it was absolutely purposeful. Like, they all knew they were lying when they went with it. Then they probably duped over some regular people. What happened was, it's in, like, coal-fired pizza ovens in particular, which, by the way, only makes up a tiny percentage of the actual pizza ovens even in New York, Mm. right? They're, they were re- requiring better efficiency standards where like you measure the amount of whatever sort of toxic stuff comes out of there, the, the microparticles yeah. or whatever that goes in your lungs. They required like, you need to measure that and you need to get it under a certain amount. And if you don't get it under a certain amount, then we'll work with you to come up with other solutions. So
1: I think you're thinking of a, a different dishonest Republican freak out, which was about the pizza ovens. That's what I'm York. talking about. Yeah. But oh, you're a talking different about, uh, one yeah, yeah the, gas stove, the gas, gas stoves. Remember that? Well, that one, they Where were just was mad like, at science. They was, right. It was like, <laughs> these are actually kind of bad for you and it'd be better if you have an electric stove. And they were like, how dare you?
0: Yeah, like politics totally aside, it was literally just a, an empirical scientific study that was like, hey, here are the health problems this leads to. Here's the evidence for that. It wasn't like something that's debatable. It's just like, here are the facts and you do with it whatever you want, but here are the facts. Uh And they pretended like Biden, you know, Emperor Biden woke up the next day and said, we are banning all gas stoves, which obviously he didn't do. Like Jackbooted
1: government thugs were going to come into your kitchen and confiscate your stove or whatever.
0: (laughs) But the pizza one, I'm going to plug the segment I did at the time. Yeah. I think DeSantis brought it up or something. And so I covered, it's like type in DeSantis pizza oven or something, secular talk, and then you could watch the whole video where I break the whole thing down. But it was so immensely dishonest. I guess what I'm amazed by is how much these people overreach and they think they can get away with it. They can't. You know? Well, only because Fox can. News will repeat these things over and they over. They have a
1: whole media ecosystem. But then they dupe
0: grandmas and grandpas over the country. But it's like, it's only them who are falling for it. There's nobody, and there's no millennial, no Gen Z person, very few Gen X people who are going to watch that and be like, yeah, that's right. It's, like It's that 20% of the country that's like still with Trump that's falling for all of that nonsense. Yeah. Nobody else is falling for
1: it. Yeah. But, you know, when they're thinking about just like, well, how do I win a primary or how do I get It's not even about like elected office. It's really about like, how do I get a bunch of likes and retweets on Twitter right. or uh, yeah. wherever? How do I get cloud? How do I get my next Fox News media appearance or my next like Daily Wire invite? This is the stuff that sells. So yeah, just that's,
0: lie. Let's just lie. Let's just, let's just, make, just make up some lying. kind of
1: manufactured freak out over whatever.
0: Yeah. So um speaking of manufactured freak out. Okay. There was an article in The Guardian, and Ken Klippenstein brought this to my attention on Twitter. And we've seen this with terminology when it comes to politics quite a bit. We've mm-hmm. seen it for decades now. But he has an article here that goes through what should we call the homeless. Mm-hmm. So the home the, the title is homeless, houseless, unhoused. That like it went from homeless to houseless to unhoused. That was the evolution of what it's politically correct to call homeless people. And um I want to read you a passage from this article. They say some advocates think that the newer word doesn't go far enough. Homeless, houseless, unhoused, they're abstract and kind of euphemisms. I prefer house deprived, (laughs) but it's a mouthful, said Jonathan Russell, chief strategy and impact officer at Bay Area Community Services, Community Services. (laughs) So uh, Klippenstein tweets that out and then right underneath it, he puts what is now the infamous um, CIA manual called Simple Sabotage Field Manual. Yes. About strategic things you could do to undermine movements. And of course, he highlights the passage where they say, now, by the way, I, I highly recommend everybody read the whole thing because it's like amazing. You read it and you're like, oh my God, this is what happens on the left every single all Tuesday. The time. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's all
1: like the time. Like if you think about like all the woke freakouts, basically, that take these organizations down, it's like word for word out of this manual. <laughs>
0: exactly. So one of the things that's in the manual is like, you need to haggle over precise wordings. And then if people don't, agree to the new term you just made up then you castigate them as you know right wingers and evil and bad and part of the problem or whatever and it's like as you know he tweeted this out I'm sure he's it's sort of tongue in cheek and he's joking yeah but like I think he might be right I think it might actually be I, I mean that's the point I'm at right now because sometimes you see these fights and it gets like so absurd and so ridiculous and so pathetic that it's like, this has to be manufactured. This has got to be an op. This has to be, because nobody can be that dumb. I mean, I guess what happens is it could start as like a CIA op and then there are some gullible people who fall for like the, let's fight over the wording all day long. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But I kind of think it does start as like an op because who, like, you're just describing a category that exists and there's nothing about homeless, in my opinion, that is derogatory, that has a negative connotation nothing yeah. about houseless, nothing like, so why are we even haggling over the word? Like, sometimes I understand if you want to update the terminology, like there was a time where when we were kids, they said illegal aliens are coming in the country. right? And then that was changed to illegal immigrants because, you know, it's like, they're not aliens, aliens. they're people. Like yeah. it's a way to try to dehumanize and say they're foreign. right? But then that was moved to undocumented immigrants. And now in a year or two, they're going to change it to something else when we're talking about the same concept. Yeah, And it's like, at some point, can we just say this is a fair, objective descriptor? Like, I think illegal immigrant is fair. I know they say, well, no person is illegal. But it's like, okay, you can use that terminology if somebody's coming into the country and they're not permitted to come into the country, you're allowed to use that. That doesn't say anything about their humanity or their worth. Mm-hmm. That you you know, you could be, I'm in favor of a, a humane system that allows people in and abides by human rights, et cetera. But like, I still think it's fair to call it illegal. Like, in other words, I don't think the, these conversations don't matter. Like, what do we, there's no... No change comes about from playing with the wording to the point of absurdity.
1: So I mostly agree with you. Let me let me say a couple of things. First of all, I won't say the language doesn't matter at all, because I do think the difference between a legal alien, undocumented immigrant, like the impression that that makes on the public, it does matter. I don't think that, you know, fights over language are just like purely theatrical and have absolutely no impact but I think they can oftentimes distract from the substance of the real problem of the issue, right? The problem with homelessness isn't people talking about homeless people. Yes. Homeless people, it's yes. like the fact that people don't have housing and can't afford housing. Yes. They're living on the streets and are treated like shit. Like, So let's not distract from the substance of the issue, number one. And number two let's have a lot of grace for people who, you know, aren't comfortable, don't like the new terminology or just aren't even aware the new terminology exists. Like I'm not housing deprived. I've never even heard that before. Right. So if you've got someone whose heart is in the right place, who's trying to talk about an issue and they're using not the most up-to-date PC language, like let's also have a lot of grace for that. So I don't want to completely discard the idea that language matters. We both spend a lot of time thinking about our words. I spend a lot of time, you know, writing monologues and choosing my words in my language carefully. So language does have an impact, but that should not become the whole fixation of debate. It shouldn't derail, you know, good things and good solutions that people are trying to propose. And it certainly shouldn't be used to shut people out. And, you know, make the the club of people who care about homelessness more exclusive. We should be looking for ways to bring as many people as possible into that conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just think the thing is, it does derail the debate. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. that's the problem with it, is that that becomes then the entire conversation. Like, you know, what do we call these people? fighting
1: over a word is easy. Like, actually dealing with the problem is hard.
0: Yeah. And I don't, I disagree in the sense that it's not like now that we call them undocumented immigrants, all of a sudden anti-immigration sentiment went away if anything, it's gone up, not because it's not it's not a correlation equals causation thing. We're like, yeah. because we call them undocumented immigrants. Now people hate them more. No, I'm just saying like that had no impact on anything ever. You know what I'm saying? So I, not, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying let's use the most primitive language forever. That's not what I'm saying. But yeah. I think the pace at which things are updated, even to the point where a term might be acceptable, but they want to change it anyway. That smells like CIA trickery to me.
1: Yeah, uh, sure. Yes. But to go back to the immigration example. Like, um, you know, we developed this term dreamers to describe people who were brought here as children, you know, wasn't their choice, they came with mom and dad and they, you know, became in the popular lexicon, they were described as dreamers. And they became the most sympathetic group of undocumented immigrants. And it led to this huge bipartisan support for them, you know, receiving legal status and citizenship. And, you know, I think that the compelling, sympathetic nature of their story is the core of that, but that you had language that was consistent with that, I do think helped, right? I think that that helped. Whereas Republicans, you know, they, they like to use this language of like anchor babies and they play their own games with language to try to demonize and, you know, make something sound really nefarious or like vote harvest, ballot harvesting is another example of that. So, Again, I think in terms of popular sentiment and opinion, language can make a difference, but it's certainly not the end all be all. And it certainly shouldn't be used to like exclude, demonize, et cetera, people who are genuinely trying to participate in a conversation, but maybe just don't like use the right
0: word. Yeah, I mean, I guess my counter argument is that I feel like on many, with many, uh, with a lot of terminology, we've already reached a place where it's like, that's a good one. And then it's, people are still like, no, 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 no. That's actually problematic. And it's like,
1: well, we also should just look at like housing deprived is a stupid word. Like it's not a good term. It's not good terminology. Even he acknowledges like this is a mouthful. It's like, yeah, so don't pick it then. (laughs) Don't try to push in that direction of housing deprived. The argument against I I say homeless, so I'm not against using the word homeless. But the argument that they would use is similar to the one with uh, immigration where it's like, sort of essentializing the person like this is the only quality oh, about see, them. That's
0: where they all lose me. Like, no, because it's just a descriptor. If you are homeless, you are without a home. Mm-hmm. You are homeless. You don't have a home. Now, I know their response is, well, the world is their home. And it's like, OK, then why do you why are you pretending like this is an issue we need to fix? If you think if the world's their home, I guess they don't need a home. I guess they already have a home. Right. So it's like they just stop. Just stop, stop, stop. The wording is uh, I agree with you. I'd say the wording is like 80% irrelevant. Yes. And they're making it 100% of the picture, where now it's like people, like you've seen the videos of those DSA meetings where people are yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. So you just use ableist language. And it's like, oh my God, we're never getting healthcare dog. <laughs> look at my comrades, we're never getting healthcare dog. Like that's what I think when I look at that. And again, it smells like CIA trickery to me. It really does because it's in the field manual in perfect with a perfect description.
1: I think you also, though, have a lot of like social media in the same way on the right. You have these social media incentives to like be ridiculous about Bud Light and ceiling fans and gas stoves and pizza ovens or whatever. You know, there's there's a reward for being the person who like virtue signals the hardest and calls out the person who's not using the right language, I'm the purest. I'm the
0: purest among us.
1: There's a oh, you know, nobody there's, cares. Shut up. Shut there's up. Shut a, up. Shut an up. online clout <laughs> reward. Uh, yes, of course. Of for course. doing that, so yeah. there's also an incentive system. It's in place separate and apart from the CIA op that has obviously good. launched this.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> introduce our guest for us.
1: Okay. So we are going to be talking to Saurabh Amari. He just wrote a book called Tyranny Inc., which I really recommend. I think it's very thoughtful and very interesting. And if you're an economic lefty, you probably find a lot to agree with in there. I know I certainly did. Um, he is on the right. Uh, I think he would consider himself populist right. And he's founder and editor of Compact Magazine, contributing editor to American Conservative Magazine and contributing writer at New Statesman. And he joins us now. Sarah Vamari welcome. Glad to have you.
2: Thank you for having me. This is the first ever husband and wife podcast I've ever done.
1: Oh, for real? You haven't been on with like Matt and Mercedes Schlapp or anything. Or <laughs> Joe Scarborough you... and Mika.
0: Joe, Joe and Mika. Mika.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there are some other other famous oh, duos definitely. out there. <laughs> sure. awesome. um, all right, so let's just jump into the book. For people who, you know, aren't familiar with it, haven't read it, explain why you wrote it and what is the central thesis there?
2: Sure. So I wrote this on election night 2020 when... Um, It wasn't clear who had won yet by the time I went to bed. um, Obviously, I I am a man of the right, and so I was cheering for Donald Trump. And one thing that was already clear uh, by the evening was that uh, the Trump GOP had not only consolidated the gains it had made four years earlier with white working class people, but had also made inroads among um, working class people of color such that this buzzword of the multiracial working class and the idea that the GOP is now the main vehicle for the multiracial working class became kind of viral that very night and so not long after that i pitched a book to my editors at, at random house um a book that would be a manifesto for a pro worker republican party and so that's a very typical kind of Washingtonian book. I mean, I don't live in Washington, but it's a kind of typical, you know, here's what the GOP can do now, now that it's a working class party. But mm. when I got around to reporting the book and sort of thinking through, especially thinking through not just, um, you know, the immediate politics, but what had gone on the past previous four years under Trump himself, and in a longer frame of, let's say, since the New Deal order and its collapse and the rise of neoliberalism, it seemed to me that writing that kind of a manifesto book would be putting the the cart before the horse, um, because many of the kind of barriers to working class flourishing um, in the past generation or two has been put put up. to a large extent by the Republican Party. Um, I would also add to that uh, list of culprits like the neoliberal Democrats of the Clintonian era, but it's really kind of, we're talking about um, changes in the political economy wrought by the Reagan-Thatcher model. And so it seemed, yeah, premature to write a manifesto. So instead what I wrote is a book that um, is... Geared at a general audience, and its central thesis is that Americans are all too, you know, kind of are are used to thinking about coercion and tyranny as only what government does to us, especially in recent decades, when in fact we are enveloped by, surrounded by, confronted by coercion in the private economy. And precisely because the kind of reigning neoliberal ideology, especially promoted by, you know, kind of the Wall Street Journal editorial page where I used to work, uh, by um, lots of business schools and kind of orthodox uh, economics, etc. That ideology says precisely because the coercion we face in the private economy is a quote-unquote private problem, that therefore it cannot be subjected to You know, democratic deliberation, democratic give and take, due process, public accountability, you know, all the things we associate with a decent political order are removed from our reach when we're dealing with like an employer or or a monopolistic seller in a market or a big tech company, what have you. Um, So that's the basis thesis of the book and that's its origins as well.
0: So I have to say, I'm pretty intrigued by your your political story for a number of reasons. Uh, you mentioned Trump early on there. We can come back to him a little bit later, but I wanted to like zoom out for a second. First of all, I've never heard a right-winger talk like you just talked about the economy right there, literally never. Um, so on what issues would you say you're more on the left and on what issues are you on the right? I know the typical answer is economically, you're more left. On social issues, you're more right. But lay that out for me in more detail. Like, where do you fall on guns? Where do you fall on abortion? Where do you fall on gay marriage? Give me some specifics.
2: I think I, it, it is fair to describe me using current or conventional political labels as economically uh, left. Sometimes people say economically liberal, which is annoying because economically liberal often or has – rightly historically been seen as you're pro free market you're a classical liberal right um, but pollsters use this kind of fra- phraseology of economically liberal which means roughly like coordinates with your pro new deal your pro entitlements maybe your pro um um government run health care which i am i support medicare for all and culturally conservative um to me, that's not a contradictory posture. For one thing, um, there's a lot of voters in, in out there in American society who roughly fall on that um, kind of corner of the political spectrum. And second, I mean, more fundamentally, I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic. And um, despite the efforts of, a, of a, a lot of conservative ideologues to present Roman Catholicism as just perfectly lined up with Paul Ryan Mitt Romney world world view. Paul (laughs) Ryan Mitt Romney thought it's not. You know, it's much more complicated. Uh, The church embraced collective bargaining as a necessity given um, the nature of labor markets after the Industrial Revolution. It did that in the 19th century. A hundred years ago, uh, the American bishops put out a statement basically calling for an economy in which a single breadwinner should suffice to um, Mm. run a family and so on and so forth. Um, So, you know, to me, my worldview is just um, Catholic, but um, there are many others in the American tradition who fit this kind of weird box of being economically left and culturally liberal are, sorry, culturally right. Um, So, um, you know, obviously, I would point to the Nixon Eisenhower tradition in the in the American tradition, basically making its peace with the New Deal order, and not even making its not just making its peace, but then expanding the New Deal logic in other dimensions of society. Um, and Teddy so, Bro- you
1: you Bro- actually ex- you actually explicitly tie those two two parts of your philosophy together in the book, and I'd love for you to go into that further, just so people understand where you're coming from. That you see, you know, whether you want to call it social democracy or New Deal or you know economic leftism or whatever, as creating some of the economic conditions of thriving that would lend itself towards these more traditionally associated with like cultural conservative focus on family, community, etc. So tie those two pieces together for people so they can understand your philosophy a little better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Uh, um my primary frustration—I've been part of the professional right. I started my career, at the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I then became the op-ed editor of the New York Post. Um, mm-hmm. I became a Catholic in midway through that journey. Um, but even before I became a Catholic, I, you know, I have I have a instinctively kind of social conservative ethos, right? Um, and what i found frustrating over more than a decade as being part of the professional right is the way in which, um, you know, the conventional conservative movement decries certain social phenomena. Like, oh, people aren't having children. Oh, people aren't getting married. Oh, there's this widespread sense of alienation in our society. Um, Oh, everyone is so cutthroat, et cetera, et cetera. But they never connect. They deliberately blinker themselves to the ways in which those cultural phenomena that they, I would say rightly decry, have roots in how we organize our political economy and our class structure. So for example, um, the book is mostly, as you know, Crystal is mostly a repertorial book. I mainly tell stories of how ordinary people experience our economy and the bottom rungs of the labor market. And so I begin with a chapter on what's called, by sociologists, scheduling precarity. I tell the story um, of this woman who is a Massachusetts woman working for restaurants, and they all now use what's called just-in-time scheduling, where a human resources algorithm sometimes, or sometimes just the employer using their own judgment, will schedule the worker for just those hours when they might be high demand, and then otherwise cancel shifts or do what's called clopening shifts, where the worker shows up for the first two hours of the shop being open, and then again for the last two hours when it's closing, when there's need, there's demand. Um, if you had a more regular schedule for workers, the employer and employee would roughly equally share the costs associated with periods of low demand. But in the past few decades, we've shifted all the costs associated with periods of low demand in the service industry onto the back of workers. And so if you have someone as this woman, Alicia Fleming, who had a child, then life becomes a nightmare when you're dealing with algorithmic, just-in-time human resources scheduling. Why? Because um, you're scheduled for a shift, but then it's suddenly canceled so you don't get the wages. Or it's suddenly scheduled and it's not enough time for you to set up uh, you know, childcare. So right. then you can't, you can't take the shift Um and either way, you're in this kind of constant period of being harried, not having a sense of regularity. And that's about a third of service workers in the country receive less than a week's notice of their upcoming schedule. So if you think about what that does to a life, and if you're a social conservative and you want, you know, moms be moms to be able to make ends meet and they want them to be able to spend life spend time with their children with any kind of regularity. What does that do to the mother and child? And is it any wonder, as in fact studies show, that the children of workers who are subjected to this kind of just-in-time precarious scheduling are more likely to be anxious, to display feelings of guilt, to act out in school, to have violent kind of temper tantrums, etc. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to connect the causal dots. It's because mom can't spend regular time in any kind of meaningful way way with the with the child. And then you add elder care, you add other things that make up a life. You know, we used to have we used to be able to offer workers more regular scheduling. It's purely the determination to maximize gains for the employer at the expense, you know, like all the costs associated with low demand have to be borne by the worker, whatever that That's means right. for their life. So Social conservatives worry about those effects, right? They're like, oh, kids are acting out in school. Kids are alienated. Kids are alone. Kids report feelings of guilt, et cetera. But they dare not then say, what is our class structure? And especially the kind of really cutthroat, efficiency-maximizing neoliberal model might
0: have to do with that. So this is why I find you really interesting, because you're basically making a conservative case for FDR's economic policies, which is something that you know, I greatly appreciate as somebody who's on the left and makes an argument for FDR's economic policies. So uh, I just want to run through uh, what I'm surmising here from what you're saying your, your positions may be and then get you to respond, correct it where I'm wrong, etc. Um, it sounds like you're pro-union, sounds like you're for a higher minimum wage, for universal health care, as you laid out, uh, money out of politics and ending the corruption, a better, stronger social safety net, I'd say that's where you fall economically and then socially uh, would you say you're like I know you're pro life so on abortion you're you know pretty solidly with republican politicians guns I, are you pro gun are you um anti immigration or for at least more restricted immigration or are you against gay marriage I'm, I'm curious really, where you I'm fall happy, on those
2: I'm happy to run through some of those Sure uh, on guns it's never been an issue that that exercises me like it's not a it's not a fundamental issue for me. Um, But, you know, at the New York Post, uh, we ran an editorial. um, The headline was basically, get rid of these weapons of war. Um, I actually did not write that editorial. It came down from the top. A lot of people might be surprised to know that um, the leadership at News Corp, specifically Rupert Murdoch, thinks American gun laws are pretty crazy. But I was happy to defend that on Fox News and take a lot of heat for it because I think it's my friend it's fucking crazy that people <laughs> say it's gonna run around with um you know semi-automatic rifles and <laughs> weapons of war I mean I, I it's, it's it's really obvious to me and I think we should just have an honest conversation to say that you know that the right in this country wants, more liberal gun regime, by liberal I mean more lenient, letting people do what they want, but that that comes at the cost of America having a certain kind of nihilistic shooting spree every once in a while, which is, I don't want to say unique to the United States, because other countries like Serbia recently had a few few months ago, but the rate at which we have those cannot be explained at bottom by anything but the fact that we have the gun laws that we do, and we just have to be honest about that. I think it's like it's part of our constitutional order. Um, we should try. We can do things to try to limit those by regulating the type of weapon and the type of person who can get a hold of weapons. Um, uh, but like, I, I just, it just seems obvious to me that that's why. You know, other you know, there's a kind of tendency on the right to be like, oh, you know, it's just a matter of social ennui and boredom and alienation, like. Depression. Yet we, lots of other countries have those problems,
0: but um, uh, no shootings. Yeah, not as many shootings. Not as many shootings.
2: Yeah. Not, not 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 so pervasive.
0: Um,
2: I, I I am in favor of um, immigration restrictions, uh, including legal restrictions, but certainly illegal. I think that that used to be a pretty widespread position on the labor left. It's only a relatively recently. That um, as the Democratic Party has become more pro-open borders, um, you know, the AFL-CIO and others have gone along in part, and that's a separate question in part because so dependent labor unions are on the Democratic Party. Um, so they have to go along with every issue, I, I suspect. But the bottom line is that um, if if you have this sort of hyper-exploitable reserve army of labor that's always willing to work for less and is hyper Uh, vulnerable, then um, that's not good for, that's not good for wages for native workers. It's not good for those people. Um, I also, I mean, I have the sympathy for people, especially in border communities who sense that there's like no sense of order over who comes over the border. Um, I reported on the European migrant crisis uh, in 2015, 16, I was working for the wall street journal at the time based in London and precisely because I'm Iranian and Iranian heritage, and I speak Persian fluently, they sent me out to report. And actually, the journal, as as you may know, has a pretty open borders worldview for its own kind of neoliberal reasons. And I was I went out there to try to write like a write a sympathetic story, but as I embedded more and more among these Persian speaking, mostly Afghan migrants, um, I saw a lot of violence breaking out between them. And I could see from the point of view of, let's say people in the Balkan states who are on the front lines of the European migrant crisis in, again, 2015-16, being like, what the hell? Like, (laughs) you know, this is destabilizing in various ways. And then for people, you know, in Germany and Sweden, which are often the recipient states, Mm -hmm. again, working class people being like, well, this this puts pressure on my wages, this puts pressure on my benefits. Um... And I would just say that the New Deal order, Kyle, that you mentioned um, that, um, uh, you know, we both celebrate coincided with a period of of relatively low immigration. Um, so I'm not like, you know, an, anti-immigration as such. I think the country needs it, but I think we should reconfigure certain things. Certainly the kind of lawlessness at the border is not good. Um, the kind of intent, indentured servitude that companies get to do through the um H1B visa program is really unjust and left people should be at the forefront of speaking out against that. Um, so
0: I, I let me just interject for a second. I would definitely take issue with categorizing the Democrats as in favor of open borders. I think Biden has continued a lot of Trump's immigration policies for a long time, Title 42, remain in Mexico, etc. I think both parties are for having some semblance of a border. It's just a matter of, you know, degree in terms of how different they are. But I would ask you uh so it sounds to me like you're moderate on the issue of guns. Um on this issue of immigration, would you say you're you're as hardline as Trump or do you think he goes a little too far and you'd be a little more um, altruistic and in line with human rights? Or like, where would you fall in in relation to Trump? Would you say he got it right or he was a little too hard or what?
2: Well, I just think that... um The remain in Mexico policy is right for many reasons. Again, because I reported this in the European context, and it really isn't that different. Um, You know, when you signal that potentially if you could just make it across the border, you will be integrated into the society, into into a kind of shadow labor market and society, what that does—that is above all a boon to human smugglers. Um, and the, you know, when people ask why did a million people make it from, you know, North Africa and the Middle East to Europe in 2015, 16? Well, North Africa, and Middle East had long been unstable places, full of human rights violations and and other problems. Um, but specifically the reason that that wave happened is on the one hand, because Angela Merkel signaled that she's willing to accept as many as they come. We're, as she said, we can, we can handle this. And on the other hand, because GPS technology and, you know, uh, boats and so forth are such that you can, it's much easier to get people from the Western shore of Turkey, Turkey to the Greek isles and then onto the kind of, Greek mainland and beyond to the Balkans and eventually to to northern and western Europe, so that that's essentially what we're talking about is a kind of human smuggling crisis. And I think um, the idea that of disincentivizing the smugglers by saying that you know people can't get in that way is also good for would be migrants. And we should also, you know, there might be a case to say, hey, we need X, Y, Z number of migrant workers. But to use the asylum process for what are ultimately economic migrants makes a mockery of the whole thing and makes it much more difficult to have a rational conversation because you think, well, not not all of these. In fact, the majority, a lot of these people, you know, the places they come from may be troubled, but they're not, strictly speaking, asylum speak seekers. And so... I mean, that's just my answer. I think, you know, remain in Mexico was actually a decent policy. It kept things under relative control. I think the, um, you know, family separation policy, I think we can talk about that. I think that the phrasing of that is needlessly inflammatory relative to what's happened under both administration, Trump and Biden. But on the whole, again, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we should not use the asylum process as a mechanism for bringing in more workers. If we want more workers, let's have a democratic debate about that. But a lot of the people who are coming over are not strictly speaking, you know, asylum seekers. And that was not the case in Europe as well. And that bring, builds a lot of resentment and confusion because we obfuscate the terms.
0: Gotcha. I mean, I, I would just say, uh, I don't think your categorization of Democrats and the left more broadly on the issue of borders, I I don't think they're even remotely close to open borders. I mean, Bernie himself said open borders is a Koch brothers proposal. What I was trying to get from you and you did provide an answer is, you know, where do you stand on the the family separation or militarizing the border? Like because uh, they're, you know, in some ways, I think Trump was uh, accurately categorized as a hardliner on it. And even Biden, in many respects, sort of followed in in Trump's tradition and then recently made some changes, I think, to. Um, ameliorate the harshest edges around that. Go ahead, Crystal.
1: Um, so, one thing that we talked a little bit about, but I'd love for you to lay out for this audience as well, is a lot of people hearing you talk about economics, and you just wrote you know, a book that's all about economics and how central that is to so many of the other social and cultural phenomena, which you see as downstream to that basic economic social safety net and that basic economic bargain. So if that's so central why are you on the right? Because it's like, okay, well, if that's the priority and a lot of your social cultural goals you think will be helped by having this better economic deal for the majority of people, then, you know, wouldn't it be better to work within the Democratic Party or, you know, support Bernie Sanders type movements? And then, you know, you're not getting all your cultural priorities, but they're at least being aided by having that social safety net in place.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, um, I find myself genuinely torn between the parties increasingly. Um, I I think that puts me in the same boat as many other Americans. Um, you know, if you think about a lot of Americans, there may not be where I am on certain cultural issues. I just want to be honest with the audience here. Like I'm, pretty devoutly catholic and that puts a barrier about coming on fully to the left at least the left as it is today um as a matter of as a matter of conscience honestly mm-hmm. um so it's like abortion is just kind of non-negotiable for for catholics who but there are lots of other people who may not be you know five decades of the rosary a day opus Day catholics by the way, I'm not describing myself that way. I can often be a very lousy one in terms of my <laughs> personal practice. But the point is that they're not like that, but nevertheless, they're more um, they're more culturally conservative than today's kind of current matrix of where the left is on cultural issues allows. And so, you know, at the same time, when I launched this book, I wrote a book, I'm sorry, I wrote an op-ed for the news for Newsweek, in which I said, I've sort of lost hope. In the Republican Party, really becoming that party of the working class that was promised in 2016 and 2020, um, we can get into why that is. I think we discussed it on on, um, on breaking, breaking points. points yeah, um, but so w- what I see as useful is not me saying, "Okay, I'm on the left now," but rather. Being someone on the right who's willing to voice certain things about our political economy that make it possible to create a coalition down the middle, because what we have to remember is that economic reform in this country happens coalitionally. It ne- it it never happens that just like one side realigns and smashes the other in the face, but rather these complex coalitions come up come together. So, for example, the New Deal coalition brought together you know high WASP. Gentry, it brought together urban working-class Catholics, and it brought together evangelical backcountry Democrats. Mm -hmm. Those three groups all have their own ferocious cultural beefs, Um, and yet it was not such a zero-sum game. Somehow they were able to think that they could do, they could agree to disagree on certain theological and cultural issues. We'll put those aside or, or try to resolve them in other ways or in other avenues but at the same time we all agree that the pre 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 new deal economy was terrible it was prone to crises and bankruptcy cycles and you know very low rates of unionization which meant workers very were super exploited and that created a demand crisis in the economy As you know, that where they couldn't workers couldn't afford the things they were producing, and and that created macroeconomic problems. So they realized, okay, we're going to work together. And so that's what I see as my role. I don't think it would be helpful if I just completely jumped ship and became, you know, a Bernie Democrat. Um, And I see, you know, interesting movements on the left in this direction. Um, Senator Chris Murphy is one who's very much worth paying attention to, basically saying we're not going to build complete bridges over cultural issues, but we may be able to work together on the economy. I would argue that Senators Rubio and Vance and Hawley on the right are trying to do the same thing, allying with, you know, Senator Warren and and Sanders on these issues. Neoliberalism itself was a bipartisan coalition. Um, You know, Reagan's logic was then extended in a zillion different directions by president clinton um likewise in britain um margaret thatcher was asked what's your greatest achievement at one point and she answered tony blair so mm-hmm. if we're going to replace the neoliberal model it'll have to be something we build together in the center because we have such a large kind of pluralistic country you can't you can't do it on on your own on either side i believe
0: so would it be fair then to say that at least if you you know, keep voting Republican or generally describing yourself as Republican, isn't it fair to say that then you kind of prioritize your pro-life stance above the economic stuff
2: I, I I guess so. I mean, I I the 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 classic way that people describe Catholics is um that we're either and people um rather than either or. um and so I mean, as a as a political actor, I'm, I'm going to fight for both things. Honestly, I mean, again, many of your viewers may disagree with this, but the reason I'm opposed, for example, to, to euthanasia, it comes from the same place as why I'm opposed to workplace exploitation. Um, it's the same moral logic, right? you know, euthanasia is this practice that, um, if, if, if put into practice, as uh, is happening in some uh, some states and some Western European countries in Canada, can bring a lot... Well, although it looks like choice, in practice, it can bring down a lot of pressure on the vulnerable. As been you know This has been documented in Canada where uh, medical providers look at people who are vulnerable and tell them, you know, there is this option of medically assisted suicide. And so, you know, why is that a bad thing? Well, because you can have ever more groups of people whose worth is denigrated by health systems on the basis of the fact that, you know, there is this other option. And so, um, you know, there are many people in the disabled community who find themselves on the same side as Catholic bishops on euthanasia and and medically assisted suicide. And so my my point is that they come from the same place. And so it's very hard for me to be given this choice where I'm like, What do you value more, you know, a decent economy or one in which, you know, you you might get some of the legislative aims that you share with the left, but it also includes, you know, medically assisted suicide. That said, that said, I I think, um, as I've told many interviewers, some of our cultural disagreements, their temperature can be lowered if we do get a better economy. So what i mean by that is right now what we have is a is a low wage high welfare society what that means is not that the benefits that the we, welfare benefits that we offer are actually very generous quite the contrary they're quite miserly but it just means that as a share of the income or you know lower income people need to make ends meet welfare can take up up to half in the united states Half of fast food workers can't make ends meet uh, without public benefits. A quarter of college adjunct professors can't make ends meet without public benefits. And that's bad in all sorts of ways. But the one is cultural way that it's bad is a lot of people think unless they can get a certain kind of credential job, they're going to be part of that utterly precarious, miserable lot of Americans. And we don't have enough of those kinds of kind of information-based credential-oriented jobs in this country. And we may not have them in the future either. And so what a lot of people end up competing over is over their kind of cultural resentments and grievances. I am this, I am that.
1: Mm.
2: That builds up this kind of tension over identity. But if we can build an economy in which, you know, there are working class jobs that are safe and secure and people can take care of their elderly parents, people can take care of their kids, people can afford to get married, maybe take a, oh, you know, God forbid, they can make a vacation sometime and so on. Then it will lower the temperature of some of our cultural disagreements. Mm -hmm. I don't want to kind of give too rosy a picture. Some of these are so fundamental, they're philosophical issues over which reasonable Americans will always disagree. But some other ones, you know, what Republicans call woke Um, And conversely, I think some kind of rising white identity politics on the right, both of their temperatures can be tamped down, I believe, if we if we did have a better economy and there are you you can be a conservative on the sort of deep fundamental issues like euthanasia, abortion, et cetera, and still work to bring about that kind of an economy in other respects. I don't see that as contradictory.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I've made that argument before. You've made that argument before. It's actually a common uh, left wing critique so, a couple things there. Um, it's interesting you brought up how your Catholicism is front and center and it uh, informs your politics because my mom is a Catholic. I was raised Catholic. and um she was
1: literally a nun she was her mom was literally a <laughs> nun. And
0: um, my mom, most of her life voted Republican. I would argue largely because her family was Republican, and it was just sort of like, what you do if you go through the motions, but as she got older, she started voting more for Democrats. Now she probably votes like 80% of the time for Democrats, 20% of the time for Republicans. And I think the viewers will be interested in knowing that when you look at the numbers for Catholics and where they align politically, it's actually um, the group that is most split when it comes to party affiliation among mostly, you know, white voters, obviously the black church is overwhelmingly democratic, but among white voters, they're split relatively close to 50, 50 Democrat, uh, 50% Democrat, 50% Republican. Um, on the euthanasia point, that was very interesting to me. So there's, I have two questions for you. I think I know the answer to both, but I want to hear from you. Number one, uh, does it also apply to the death penalty? So are you against the death penalty? I think I know the answer you're going to give. And number two, um, physician-assisted suicide with strict rules and regulations. So like if I have stage four cancer and I have a month left to live and I'm begging to be put out of the physical pain that I'm in, even in that instance, you say no?
2: Yeah, so to answer your, your first half, um, what the Holy Father, Pope Francis, has decreed about... Um, uh, that the death penalty is not that the church is absolutely against it because it's not, um, you know, obviously Jesus says, apologies, that the two, the two thieves who are getting executed next to Jesus say, you know, our execution is just, um, so that in, in, in theory, the church can, can, um, can accept the death penalty as a matter of justice. But what Pope Francis has said, which I think is reasonable, is that under modern conditions, we have enough other ways of, you know, correcting crime, right, or to to making victims of crime whole, and at the same time preventing uh, criminals from criminalizing from, from victimizing others, and at the same time, given the risks of unjust executions, you know, potential people who aren't guilty being executed, that given all that, that in practice. The death penalty is opposed, and I think that's you know I there there is this expression um, among Catholics that Rome has spoken, the debate is over, and so I I follow that quite strictly. Um euthanasia, and I, I, euthanasia though I would say that um, the, sorry the expression is that Rome has spoken, the cause is finished. I wanted to give mm. the. Ex- the correct one. So, um, on euthanasia though, no, I mean, I think I'm, I'm absolute about that just because I, I, you know, I did a lot of reporting on this in Belgium, Luxembourg, these countries in Europe, the Benelux countries in Europe were the first to, to legalize it. And it just never, no matter how many guidelines you put in place, it just never stops so that, you know, in some of these countries, you now can get medically assisted suicide, um, for depression um i reported on this uh, uh this belgian man from the kind of dutch half of belgium whose mom was offered offered medically assisted suicide for for dep- purely for depression which is an episodic condition and so i just i in my heart of hearts i believe that it's one of those things where you if you open it up it'll just keep it'll keep expanding uh, especially given the kind of logic of um scarcity that underpins, especially the neoliberal order, where it's like, there are all the more reasons not to treat people with expensive conditions. And I've spoken with um, disability rights activists who are really worried, worried about this. And again, like I said, some of them are really hardcore atheists, but they weirdly find themselves you know, in these debate shows like on the BBC, uh, alongside some cardinal saying the same thing for different reasons. So I, yeah, that's one where I don't think we'll find agreement.
1: Um, I want to ask you about how much hope you have within the Republican Party in terms of your economic positions. And I wanted to get you to react specifically to the rise of Vivek Ramaswamy and a lot of especially (laughs) online interest in him. He's the person who has adopted the sort of Trump vibe. And has certainly defended Trump very strongly and said he would pardon him and, you know, has kind of changed his tune on January 6th. And now he just stridently, stridently agrees with Trump on all this stuff. And so he's sort of seen as a Trump clone. But on economics, he's much more libertarian. And there's an article I'm going to read from uh, uh, Daniel Marins over at the Huffington Post, tracked some of this down as a very good and interesting look at Vivek's actual economic philosophy. And he writes, lost in Ramaswamy's provocative rhetoric and self-styled image as a Trumpian maverick, however, is a world of difference between him and Trump on questions of economic policy. Unlike Trump, Ramaswamy supports free trade. Unfettered legal immigration wants to deprive the Fed of its mandate to reduce unemployment and sees deregulation and tax cuts as the sole means with which to help struggling workers. And what I'm curious about your reaction to his rise and his economic stance is— do you think that a lot of the Republican Party, what they learn from Trump isn't, you know, the pieces of his economic philosophy that I see is mildly better than other Republicans? Like, for example, I'm not going to cut Social Security, Medicare, and I'm going to take a different approach on trade. Instead of embracing that, they seem to have just embraced a sort of like fuck you attitude.
2: No, I think you're 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 totally right. Um, I will say because I'm that kind of a guy, I just want to start with what I think is promising about Vivek Ramaswani is. His stance on foreign policy, Um, going further than I think a lot of a lot of Republicans will say. You know, we should stop fighting Russia because we have to prepare for the apocalyptic war with China, (laughs) and I find both terrifying. Um, Vivek has gone a little bit further than those because he says I certainly oppose funding. Uh, the Ukraine war, which I do as well. I think we should reach a negotiated settlement um, over that issue. And we should treat it as a localized intra-Slavic con- conflict rather than this existential conflict between democracy and freedom and sorry, democracy and dictatorship, freedom and repression. As unfortunately the kind of center centrist uniparty has treated that war. Vivek not only goes further, I mean he says even with Taiwan, you know, he thinks of defending Taiwan as an issue of manufacturing because we need semiconductors but that beyond um you know if if semiconductor manufacturer returns to the United States or we find some other source he would um he would not be so absolute about you know going to war over Taiwan and I think that's pretty salutary and it certainly drew a lot of heat from like conventional Republicans like Nikki Haley at their Recent undercard debate, as um, President Trump's campaign characterized it. That said, that said, okay, take a deep. That was a big throat clear. I think on domestic policy, um, he's like a typical, you know, Silicon Valley um, techno libertarian, and Mm -hmm. I I disagree with all of that. Every, you know, um, like every. It seems to me like there's not an institution that restrains the market that Vivek has not met. Or if, where he, his proposal is not to abolish it somehow, or turn it over to the market, um, and it's not like you said, it's not you know the reason Trump appealed to working class people in 2016 and 2020, even winning the highest marginal share for a Republican nominee of union households in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. What appealed to them was the fact that he said, "I'm not going to touch your entitlements. I support Medicare." He even hinted support for a public option in his de- debate with Ted Cruz. And I, th- I see a lot of the sort of Trump light options, and I think maybe Vivek included, or the Trump clones, uh, as just doing fuck you culturalism, um, but returning the Republican Party you know, to its political economy priors assumptions. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I definitely see that in Vivek. It's like- And
1: what is what is it that's causing that? Because that's what I'm trying to get at is like, I'm not sure that they're wrong, actually. That, because I mean, look, Trump came into office. He did some things that were different on trade and China, et cetera. But he also gave a giant tax cut to the rich that was crafted and written by Paul Ryan and the Heritage Foundation. And nobody said boo about it. Um, They still love him for it. They're not complaining about it. They're not concerned about it whatsoever. So- what are the barriers in the Republican Party to any sort of like real shift in terms of the economy and discarding those old Reagan-Thatcher-type priorities?
2: I mean, there's like a few sociopathic billionaires who wield an enormous amount of influence. Um, <laughs> right. That's one. But more important, and this is very uncomfortable to talk about, I think I've been the only person on the right who's been willing to say this. And on the sort of new right, populist right, is the... isn't. More so than the than the few sociopathic billionaires, is the fact that the power base of the Republican Party is what you might call small or regional capital. Um, it's not like Disney or Wall Street or whatever; those those actually have complicated relationships with the with the Democratic Party. It's like the I always use this stereotype, but it's actually very apt and accurate. I'd argue. Um, the power base of the Republican Party is formed by the guy who owns a chain of car dealerships in a particular region and goes to the rubber, the proverbial rubber chicken dinner where the Republican Party toasts the self made man. And it's the, or the small time rich, as New York Magazine's Eric Levitz calls them. And that character is most hostile to labor unions, to any kind of government regulation, he or she has the sense that um, definitely there are big corporations out there that are quote-unquote woke and they enjoy government privilege, whereas, you know, they themselves are like fighting individually in the market. And if only I got rid of the sort of regulations and restrictions on market behavior that these bigger actors enjoy, then we would have a good economy, right? And that's their mentality um that figure is extremely influential in the republican party at the level of like its you know individual caucuses at you know in in somewhere like iowa or something like that and even as the republican party is bringing in more and more working class voters Working class people are not organized within the party the way that the small business people are Mm. and the small capital is. And so they don't find a voice within the Republican coalition the way organized labor has a voice within the Democratic coalition. Now, I would argue, and I think you guys would agree, that organized labor's voice has been too diminished within the Democratic coalition. But at least it is an organized voice. But so long as the Republican Party is dominated by small and regional capital, And these new voters who are alienated, they may be teamsters or whatever, but they're not like um, they're not active in the Republican Party in the same way as their brethren are within the Democratic Party. Then the tone of the party will be set by capital. Just use capital broadly. I mean, let's be unabashed. It's a reality.
0: So I want to this is like the overarching question that I have for you, which I keep coming back to. So if you compare and contrast Biden's record with Trump's record, I I don't even think it's close, like in terms of which philosophy is more uh, in alignment with the point of your book. So for Biden, he did student loan debt reduction, and he's still fighting for it with the Higher Education Act, cut $1,400 stimulus checks, did project labor agreements that helped 200,000 construction workers. $15 Did fifteen dollar minimum wage for four hundred thousand federal employees and contractors. He did the PACT Act to get health care for veterans who were exposed to toxic burn pits. They added eight hundred thousand manufacturing jobs, and that's largely due to the IRA and some other pieces of legislation like the Chips Act. They did a fifteen percent corporate minimum tax rate. You know, I look at his economic record and I compare it with Trump. Trump destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He killed the regulations that were supposed to go into place against the predatory payday loan industry and drop the court cases against them. He His number one legislative accomplishment was cutting taxes for the wealthy, where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. Given that economic record, don't you think it's more likely that Democrat you can make Democrats more socially conservative than it is for you to try to make Republicans more economically populist. In other words, aren't like the Democrats closer to where you are, where you have more of an impact on them? Because for example, Biden's in favor of the Hyde Amendment, right? He didn't lift a finger to try to make Roe v. Wade law nationally, even though there's a lot of posturing about that. So aren't you just like closer to the Democrats than the Republicans?
2: I mean, I would, in some ways, in the picture that you painted, I I would go further, right? Like, in the book, I tell the story of how the Trump administration really, through by appointing you know Justice Gorsuch and the kind of majority that it forged in the, uh, um, the Supreme Court, and then you know what Trump's Solicitor General did expanded, for example, the use of commercial arbitration in the workplace, which is a really unjust thing. You know, commercial arbitration where two merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. Agree to adjudicate their disputes, um, you know, not by using going at like a typical traditional court, but they agree to have like a neutral mediator who's cheaper and it all moves faster. They they, they agree before forming their agreement that that's how they're going to resolve their disputes. That's perfectly fine. It's very old, but since the Reagan era. You know, the Supreme Court has gradually expanded arbitration to situations of vast bargaining power, where I tell the story of this, um, uh, this uh, Ernst & Young employee named Stephen Morris, who was owed $2,000 in unpaid overtime under the Fair Labor Standards Act by Ernst and & Young. And he sued, but the only way to rationally vindicate his rights under the Fair Labor Standards Act was to do a class action. Otherwise, you know, the, what the what the firm was going to do is have him spend $200,000 on a commercial arbitration process to individually just recover $2,000, which is economically irrational. Right. Nevertheless, the Trump administration insisted that he should go through the private arbitration process and then the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, upheld that outcome saying that, well, he had freely contracted. By the way, it's interesting that, like, he had been employed for some time at Ernst & Young, and then one day, Ernst & Young sent an email saying, uh, if you show up to work the next day, you agree to commercial arbitration for your disputes, you can't do class actions. Jeez. That is not, you're not freely agreeing, because most people, again, in the real real economy, most people show up to work the next day because they have, like, mortgages to pay and food to put on the table for their kids. Um, but that's the kind of weird, um, utopian vision of how labor agreements or economic agreements in general work in the in a classically liberal or libertarian theory, which a lot of Republican justices and judges actually believe is how the real market works. Um, but at any rate, I just gave you an example of how, um, the promise of the populist promise of the, of the Trump era was really left unfulfilled, um. I would say to, to his credit, I mean, the the decoupling from China and questioning free from free trade was something that was bipartisan orthodoxy in the mid-2010s. Trump comes along and challenges it ferociously. And now, you know, the Biden administration has not only not um you know lifted the tariffs he imposed on Chinese goods, but he's even sort of expanded or accelerated mm-hmm. the decoupling, which I think is good for for many reasons. Um so I mean that's no small beer. We should give Trump uh, credit for that. But in terms of like any other element of the Biden administration compared with Trump, I'm totally with you. National relation, uh, NLRB, National Labor Relations Boards are better under uh, under Biden. The Inflation Reduction Act, I'm actually one of conservatives willing to say it's good. Like if the Chinese are investing in green tech, so should we. And that could actually yield high wage jobs. Uh, the CHIPS Act is fantastic and I'm supported. I'm on the record like in the New York Times saying good things about these things. But I just think that like there will always be a right and the left right dynamic is is a a, a fundamental reality of politics, at least in the modern era. And so it's not helpful to say to someone like me, like, well, why don't you just full on become a leftist? Because there are all sorts of reasons. There's all sorts of reasons. Many, many Americans are not on the left even though they may support these kinds of policies we talked about so that what is more useful for me, my role as an individual, it's not like my, my single vote makes that much of a difference is to be the guy on the right who pushes the right to actually live up to the pro worker rhetoric that it puts up. And that yeah. will be made a permanently frustrating role. And there's just, that's my, that's what I'm, fated to be i'm not completely alone i should say there are people like Orrin cass at american compass uh really focused on for example wall street's erosion of the real economy it does great work on that there are again like i said individual lawmakers who do good things on this stuff on the right um so i mean that's that's my role i mean i and i'm happy to be there but also to then to then be fair and say yeah like the biden administration is the ira is largely good. It may not be an inflation reduction act, but whatever it is, it's industrial policy. And yeah, even
1: even he's like, we really shouldn't have called it that. We <laughs> really had yeah. nothing to do with that. That was a Joe Manchin thing. So when if it comes down to it this time, I mean it's very likely likely to be a Biden versus Trump rematch. Who will you will you be pulling for Trump again this time around and hoping like maybe you can influence him in a better direction, this administration? Or what's your thought?
2: Well, I've I've endorsed Trump for the for the primary only because to teach a lesson to the to the segments of the Republican establishment who are trying to run someone like uh DeSantis, who sort of talks a big game on like woke capital and so on, but then wants to privatize Social Security or or cut right. benefit. Um, beyond that, like like I said, I I told Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times, like, um, again, there are issues of fundamental conscience with with abortion and um, what we call the liberty of the church or might call religious liberty where um, at least the democratic party as it's constituted today is kind of a non-starter for me but if like if there was like slight bits of modification you know modification just going a little bit closer I would say to the center where the country
0: is then it would be a serious choice for me but they're but, they're pro life uh, Democrats, right? Like, of course, there's pro life Democrats out there.
2: Yeah. they're utterly marginalized, utterly, utterly marginalized. And then, like the the sort of various NGO apparatuses of the left come down on these types insofar as they're still in elected office, like a ton of bri- bricks. Like, there's a guy named Dan Lipinski who was like the rare pro life Democrat um, in, in in Illinois, and um, you know. He he faced enormous money on the other side from, um, you know, from the pro-abortion rights side, and uh, his record on on labor issues would it would be hardly distinguishable from someone like Bernie. But
1: well, much that- to my. Much to yeah. my chagrin, I remember, I think Bernie actually endorsed him and it was a whole thing. But I mean, much to my chagrin, it's not like the Biden administration is actually promising to do anything on abortion. If they're elected, they're just yeah. promising to not like- well, I, mean,
2: things- I, I would say, look, <laughs> I, I, I would say that you guys may not like this response, but I think that the Dobbs decision by politicizing abortion and removing it from something that's a thing with a capital T handed down by the Supreme Court undemocratically in the 1970s but something that's up for political contestation is an interesting opening that could lead to, you know, lots of, lots of potentially like evangelicals being like, hmm, I care about other stuff too. Um, so there's just interesting, but it, it just means that like, again, like, I you know, uh, it, it it may shock some people who know my work to say this, but like, if we can all be a little bit less dogmatic, we could get to a healthier place.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would say... It- I consider myself a moderate on the issue of abortion. I consider myself a moderate on the issue of immigration. There's a number of things where I feel like I'm a moderate. And like Roe v. Wade to me was that sort of moderate framework. It's like you can you can ban it for late term abortion. You could have some health regulations in the second trimester. And in the first trimester, it's kind of a right. That's how I viewed it. When I look at a guy like Biden, like I said, he's in favor of the Hyde Amendment. So he doesn't want any federal government money going towards abortion. They might talk a big game about like protecting a woman's right to choose, but then he doesn't lift a finger to codify Roe v. Wade. Even under Obama, they had a supermajority and nobody lifted a finger to codify Roe v.ersus Wade. So I guess yeah, it, just you know, to be really, just
2: really, the regime you're describing is not Roe. It's the Casey regime. Um, Roe is pretty extreme. Um,
0: Roe, is well,
1: Casey, Casey was the reality though. Yeah, yeah Casey was viable. Yeah,
0: post viability. Yeah, no, I understand that, uh, and I understand. I think I'm relatively moderate on the issue overall, but I guess my point is there are more of those in the democratic party than there are the Bernie types who are like right up until a day before birth.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I would just say that it certainly in the democratic electorate people, you know, you'd be shocked at the degree to which there are people in the democratic electorate who would be not exactly where I am on this issue, but who would (laughs) maybe um, we could contemplate a national 15 week, uh, or maybe a little bit longer a little bit shorter uh but the most vocal kind of powerful elements of the Republic of the sorry of the democratic party um i would say are in the camp of being further than where most most ordinary Americans
0: are.
1: I mean, the activists are always going to have the most yeah, sort of like ideological position. position. Uh,
0: but we th- should have you back one day to debate both we, abortion and also euthanasia. I think that'd yeah. be very interesting.
1: The last thing I wanted to ask you to weigh in on is actually a debate that Kyle and I periodically have, which is, you know, you, you've you studied history a lot. You're, you know, a very thoughtful person. Really enjoyed this conversation. The other conversation we had too, Sora. Do you think that the neoliberal era is ending? Because on the one hand... You look at a guy like Joe Biden, who for the entire time, which was many years that he was in the Senate, he was pretty dyed-in-the-wool neoliberal. And now he's done some things that break with that model, you know, certainly maintaining the Trump-China policy and even pushing it further. That's an example— trying to push forward student debt relief. That's an example of what he's done with union. I mean, the, in my opinion, the Biden NLRB is like the best reason to support him. What they just did with regards to um, union organizing is is absolutely huge and potential game changer. So you see some breaks there. Trump, I mean, there were a million failures that you lay on as well as anybody else, but there were some breaks there with uh, Republican orthodoxy. So on the one hand, you say, all right, maybe there's this break in neoliberalism. On the other hand, you know, it's the same powers that be that have a lot of sway and a lot of influence within both of the major political parties. Um, so how do you see that question, Sorob?
2: I do think we're entering a post neoliberal order, and um, the Biden administration is the best piece of evidence for that. Not just the policies you mentioned, but the, the famous speech which i praised at the time you remember by Jake Sullivan yep i think 3 months ago where he said that the washington consensus has been a failure at home and abroad the washington consensus is basically a byword for that neoliberal model of ultra efficiency oh we don't need to manufacture our own stuff we can just have a services based economy and you know working class people can all become information workers or service workers and that's it's just as fine as in the, is you know heavy industry for example and manufacturing and so i think that really tells you something i think the question is what kind of post neoliberal order do we get for example you could have versions of it that are at this as even as we might like its political economic ramifications um if you don't want war uh, or pointless wars at least you mm-hmm. could have a very kind of militarized post-neoliberal order that like, yes, you know, maybe union union density rises to 12% from where it is now, which is even after the current strike wave, it's only about six, 7% in the private economy. That rises to 12%, but it implies like a permanent war footing with, you know, much of the global South or or what have you. I think that would not be desirable. So I think it's just really important to to shape what we want. And I think those moments where we have these Weird flex moments in history is when um, you know in American politics we've been able to push through enduring reforms that just do well by ordinary people. I think that's what we everyone wants around this conversation. I mean, I mean, the three of us, we all want that, and so we should work on our, on our sides, on our respective sides, to achieve that because these these windows are brief, and you could have a you could have nightmarish post neoliberal models, to be honest. And oh
0: yeah.
2: I, I just think of that as being like, you know, needless needless conflict in which the the United States doesn't grant any other rising power any degree of say over its near periphery so that we think of the entire world as our um sphere of influence. If you do that, then no power, no civilization, other civilization that respects itself can but have anything but conflictual relationships with the United States. And so if we're going in that direction, I'm not sure if like higher union density is worth it, to be honest. I mean, um, so it's like, got to shape this moment. We got to shape this moment.
0: Yeah. So in conclusion, thank you so much for joining us. I think it was a really interesting conversation. Everybody definitely check out the book, Tyranny Inc. Uh, It's great stuff. And I will say, you know, I feel like there are a lot of populist right voters out there who just really don't get represented. I think you're kind of like a good representation of those people and what they believe and how they want to move forward. Um, And, you know, credit, because I think among the people, there are many of these folks, but I think among... The so-called populist right politicians, I think they're totally full of it. I think they talk more about the problems than the solutions. They don't actually agree on the solutions that you actually do agree on. So I want to give you credit for being a genuine and honest voice on this front. And I think everybody should definitely check out your book.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank you both.
1: Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thanks, Sorab.
0: All right, that was Sorab Amari, a really interesting guy. Um, there were times where I wanted to debate him, but he would just immediately be like, yeah, that's right.
1: I was like, oh, man.
0: Uh. You know what I mean? Like, I'd ask a question. Don't you prioritize abortion over everything else, over the economic stuff, if if you vote with the right? And he's like, yeah.
1: yeah I was I like, so. all right, well, then I can't debate
0: you. are just admitting the thing that I was trying to get you to admit. You did it right away. You know what I'm yeah. saying?
1: Well, I, I think he's, a, you know, genuinely trying to sort these things through and genuinely holds a worldview that is widely represented among the Populous and completely unrepresented in washington so there's literally nobody in in washington
0: who thinks like he thinks actually the closest to him would be like biden or bernie because again like when i go through biden's economic record he's like yeah those things are good
1: i mean (laughs) the part of why i think Because right after Trump was elected, there was this whole project of like populist right and what's some different ways to approach economics from the right and whatever. It was fake among the electeds, but there was genuine like think tank movement around that in an effort to spin up some new conservative uh, publications that were, you know, thought leaders in terms of, you know, industrial policy and things that could happen on the right. These were genuine things that happened. But (laughs) what became complicated was that Biden basically adopted the you know populist right economic policy which is a lot of industrial policy you know labor unions those sorts of things and so it kind of left them with little ground to still be in opposition to Biden and very few were willing to be honest enough as Saurabh is to admit like oh, I actually think some of these things are good like if you're on the right and you're a conservative and your whole thing is hating on the democratic party you're not really supposed to say that so when i started reading the book um, and I was familiar with Saurabh and I've read some of his articles and whatever, but I still had the thought as I'm reading the book, like, where's going to be the catch? Like, where's it going to yeah. be like, and that's why we need to get rid of the woke HR department or whatever, you know, I or, you know, and that's why ESG is bad or whatever is the normal dodge for Republicans who try to posture like they're anti-corporate power, but really they're not anti-corporate power at all. And it wasn't there. I mean, it just it genuinely wasn't there. If it was just that book, you would ha- be hard pressed to find there might be something in there about, you know, lying about immigration or something that would be like, eh, but you'd be hard pressed to find anything you disagree with in that book. So for him to have that view and then marry it with this, I mean, he's he's a true believer on the cultural conservative stuff. It's just a very unusual, unique perspective that you don't hear honestly articulated anywhere.
0: Uh, but what did he say when you said, "If it's Biden or Trump, who would you vote for?" What was his answer?
1: He he was like, "I'm not sure," basically, because he yeah, said he's see, been endorsing like, Trump in the primary, which makes sense given his worldview. Because I do think everybody else in the Republican primary is worse on economics. Who's better in the Republican primary on economics? No, it's
0: that none Trump of them. Trump are- is. They're almost like all equal. Like I get that uh, Trump
1: is modestly better on trade. He's modestly He's not better modestly on better on trade. He's better
0: on entitlements. I don't think he's better on trade at all. I there think was he a net is. outsourcing of two hundred thousand jobs under his administration. Yeah,
1: but compared to the other Republicans, yeah. I mean, I support the he Trump lost jobs. He I said I'm the, the anti-outsourcing
0: guy, and then he jobs were outsourced.
1: Yeah, but like I mean, like his ten percent tariff plan. What? It's not even like he's going to do. It. It's all sort of fanfic because with Trump, you know, like you're but not going to get saying, a lot. Like
0: so, the but, thing I can't get over is he's not. He's not he's willing to criticize Trump mm-hmm. and the populist right, but he's not willing to be like, yeah, it was a total con. Like he's not those things at all. Yeah. And that's my biggest issue. And also it almost seems like it should be more of a conversion story that he's telling is like, and that's why now I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter, but it doesn't so end with said that
1: about the different view on trade is real. What's that? The, the different approach on trade under Trump versus under, you know, every other Republican. That is true. That's
0: real. Then why was there a net 200,000 jobs outsourced? If you're the anti-outsourcing guy, your policies needed to reflect no more outsourcing or bringing jobs back. And it didn't.
1: But there's always just been this, you know, pro-NAFTA, pro like open up, uh, open up free trade. But he renegotiated And whatever. Yeah, he didn't really change anything. Yeah, it was a giveaway to pharma, too. But I think his his China trade policy was modestly better and changed the sort of thinking and consensus and Washington. I think that's fair. I think that's true. But then when you get to the choice between Biden and Trump, it's like...
0: It's not even close. <laughs> it's not even close. And by it's the way, close. I was sort of underselling it how uh, conservative Joe really is on some social issues. Joe's Catholic too.
1: Well, he's just very much like of the uh, put the culture war on the back burner. I mean, he really hasn't done much in terms of... But he's gotten cultural. Uh, His priorities have been largely economic.
0: I know that. But he's also gotten crap from the very pro abortion people because they're like, you're not pro abortion enough.
1: Well, I agree with that. (laughs) No, I I understand. But I'm (laughs) saying
0: like that he should be like, and that's why he's my guy. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it goes right up to the point of like two plus two equals and then he walks away. It's like, no, it equals four.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? But he sees his role. I'm trying to be fair to him because he's not here. To he sees his himself.
0: role as converting people on the right. But he I guess sees that's his so- role
1: as trying to forge a new consensus beyond the neoliberal order. And if your view of history, and I think this is accurate, is like, you know, more important even than which party in, is in power is which paradigm is dominant. So, you know, during the New Deal era, Democrats and Republicans, to a large extent, both bought into the basic priorities of the New Deal. During the neoliberal era, Republicans and Democrats both bought into largely the same tenets of the, you know, neoliberal consensus. And so he's saying, I want to be part of forging a better post-neoliberal consensus, and that's going to take people on the right and people on the left. And so that's how he sees his role, more so than saying, like, okay, but Biden's better. Listen, I, I understand where you're coming from. I'm just trying to articulate the way he sees
0: it. I understand, but the point I would make to him is, but then the people who should be your primary enemy, your primary opponent, the focus of your ire, are the con man fake populists on the right, like Josh Hawley. Like, he's a total fraud. Mm -hmm. He pretends like, oh yeah, I'm a populist, and then he voted against raising the minimum wage. It's like, if you are somebody on the populist right, you would be most pissed at Donald Trump for being a fake Mm populist, and at Josh Hawley for being a fake populist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So like, if that's your goal, your goal is, no, I want to make the, I actually want to make the right populist. It's like, well, you go guns blazing first and foremost at the ones who were liars and frauds and con men pretended like they were going to do that and didn't do that. Instead of sort of soft peddling it and saying, I agree with all these things. And also I'm still going to endorse the guy who turned out to be a total fraud. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's insincere. I'm saying if that is your goal, then you should really, really, first and foremost, try to focus on making the fake populace on the right become actually populist by saying, God damn it, you said this thing, do this thing, you didn't do it.
1: I think he would say that he is doing that. I think he would say that is what I'm trying to do. Is I'm, that's why I'm going on conservative talk shows. And that's why I wrote this book. That's why I write these, you know, op-eds but he endorsed to try Trump to push, push the, the right.
0: But he endorsed Trump.
1: Well, who would he endorse?
0: Nobody and be like, they're all con And actually, maybe for my ideology, I think Biden's better. <laughs> like, because I feel like we see this a lot of times on like the Dave Rubin line of like, why I left the left. Let me tell you why they're so bad and why I'm going this way. And then, like, this is the closest we get on the left side of the aisle. It's like, look, I'm still kind of on the right. I'm still, but I will say, Left-wing ideas are better, but I'm going to try to make the right adopt the left-wing idea. But ideas.
1: look, he was honest about abortion is really important to him. Well, that I do feel that's like a that's... a key moral issue. That's so his he best can't just response. Like, he can't just like discard that. And, that's his you best know, response. It's but, not my ideology, but uh, that's that's honest.
0: No, I agree. I think that's that's his best uh, response. But what I'd also say is like, then write a book on abortion too. You know what I mean? Like if that's your main thing, like it's like the book should be, here's my thoughts on abortion and here's why this supersedes all other issues.
1: I mean, he could write a book on whatever he of wants. Of course he could write a, a book, book on <laughs> whatever he wants. But
0: don't you, like, if that's the thing you care most about, it's just I weird that, that the book has is about economics, written right?
1: and uh, spoken on cultural issues in the past. Yeah, I'm sure he has. I'm just I, giving
0: him yeah. a hard time. I'm just giving him I a hard can, time. I can tell that. Yeah, but it's because my, my autistic brain is, like, just struggling to grapple with the totality of the, you know? Because yeah. he is. He's like, I believe in FDR policies, and I will say that very clearly, but I'm just also socially conservative. And I just I see a total hostility to that on the right. And the closest thing to his politics are some Democrats who actually embrace the economic stuff and are halfway there on the social stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. But if abortion is murder and that's like a red line issue for you, what are you going to do? So I want to be charitable to him because I enjoy the conversation. Oh, I want to have him I back. Enjoy I love having him. him on I want to have him you know, back. I think he's an honest actor and, you know, had a good faith debate here.
0: So, oh, definitely. No, yeah. I'm not saying he's not having a good faith debate. Yeah. I'm just giving, giving him friendly critique. And I do want to have him back so that we can debate um, a, abortion. That'd be fun. And yeah. euthanasia. That'd be fun. Yeah. Because he's...
1: He's hard line. He's on hard line. Sessions,
0: about, I mean, I didn't ask sure. him, but I'm assuming he thinks from the moment of conception. I,
1: I, th- I, th- I Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, okay. I think so he's a moment pretty, of conception guy. I mean, he's a very devout Catholic, so he's pretty doctrinaire on those issues.
0: Yeah, and the euthanasia one too. I think is interesting. Anyway, all right, there you have it, guys. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. You know, I was hoping for a little more of a debate. Didn't really pan out because he was just too honest about where he falls on everything. <laughs> but anyway, there you have it. Everybody, do us a big favor. Uh, go to Substack. There's a link in the video description box below. Well, actually, if they're just listening to this, that wouldn't be in because they're listening to it in a podcast. It wouldn't be like they're watching it on YouTube. Anyway, just go find Crystal Kyle and friends on Substack. Go sign up. Five dollars a month gets you the video of every interview, and it gets it to you a day early. Everybody else can sign up on Substack for free, and you get the free audio version of the podcast a day later, usually on Saturdays. Remember, we don't talk to any advertisers. We don't do any ad reads or anything like that, so this is all funded from the bottom up, so please hook us up. We love you guys. We will talk to you soon.